You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. There can be no doubt that because of the technological revolution and the ubiquity of social media, we are more connected with each other than ever before in human history. But in spite of that access to one another, we are also more isolated, restless, anxious, and depressed. Why is that? And more importantly, what on earth can we do about it? Well, in the brilliant words of our guest today, one of the main problems is that we were, quote, created for community, but are settling for connection. And we are doing that even in the church. Our devices are shaping us in a variety of seen and unseen ways, and most of them are not good. The only way forward is not only to examine how our use of digital technology might be malforming us, but also to draw on the ancient liturgical practices, as well as invent new ones, that can remind us what we are actually here to do, which is to love each other well and to give glory to God thereby. My guest on Christian Humanist Profiles today is Felicia Wu Song, and her new book is called Restless Devices, Recovering Personhood, Presence, and Place in the Digital Age, published by InterVarsity Press Academic. Now, Felicia is a cultural sociologist of media and digital technologies, so she's well qualified to write this book. Her PhD was from the University of Virginia, and today she is a professor of sociology at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, which is where I wish I lived instead of Illinois. But anyway, she has also written a book called Virtual Communities, Bowling Alone, Online Together, which caught my eye not only because of the nod to the famous book Bowling Alone by Rob Putnam, but because my son's main actual community is through bowling, and he bowls with these same friends online as well. And I'm sure we'll get into just how hard all this is with teenagers and so on. But anyway, I'm delighted to get this chance to talk with Felicia and encourage you to discover this terrific book. Felicia, welcome to the show and thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Oh, it's a real pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's, it's so great to be able to talk to a scholar who's working on the same issues that I am because it just feels really gratifying and satisfying. So I can't wait to get into it here. Um, I want to begin with a brief experience I had recently that I think will encourage you, and I'm just going to ask you what you think about it. Okay. I was speaking in chapel at Covenant College, and my main goal was to help them to see that less is more, so I was leading them in Electio Divina, encouraging them to take the Sabbath as a kind of a challenge, just the sort of challenge you write about giving to your students when it comes to disconnecting from digital tech, right? So at the beginning of my talk, I asked the students to put their phones out of sight. But as I was looking out, I saw that nobody was really moving. So I just kind of went on. <laughs> and then afterwards, Grant, who is their wonderful chaplain, told me how last year he had made an announcement that phones and other devices would not be allowed in chapel. And the response oh. from the students was a standing ovation. So can wow. you help us unpack that a little bit in light of your book? Well, what a delightful story. Yeah. Um, I'm amazed and 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 so happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I think it's um I think s- there's so many parts to that. Um, but the my first reaction to the story is that so many of us who are older, <laughs> um, uh, with kids, um, swinging, you know, we have conversations with peers and about technology. And often we think of technology as the young person's problem. That's right, right. right. Um, and we tend to assume that the digital natives, as people like to say, are just going to be um, enthralled and completely attached to their devices. Um, and and there's kind of this um, lack of awareness, really, of how so many young people actually are really I mean, they are very savvy in many mm-hmm. regards, but mm-hmm. at the same time are at the same time, right? And I think that's what's interesting. At the same time are very fatigued, um, yes. feel cynical, um, feel stuck, you know, like trapped. Yeah. Um, and so when they are given permission, right, by someone in an organization and some space to actually not be able to, right, use their phones, right? I mean, in some ways, they have to be given that permission. There's a real freedom there 
That's so um, true. Because it's not volitional, right? It's not like, oh, I'm just going to choose to get off of it while everybody else is. That's very challenging. Yeah, because but then you have to stand out. But no, exactly. everybody has to do it, right? Right. Yeah. So whether it's chapel or summer camp or or even, you know, if if you have a professor who just has a tech free class. Right. Um, I think it's it's really interesting um, to find a, a willingness and a hunger mm-hmm. um, for that space. And I would say that's actually kind of a recent phenomenon. You know, I, didn't I agree. See- I didn't see that, you know, six years ago. No, because it's all it's lost all the newness, right? And now yeah. it's just like obligatory for them yes. to have it, right? So I think part of what's happening also is that the young people today are getting their devices so much earlier in their lives. So they've started having smartphones and being on social media and TikTok since they're like in fifth grade or, yes. or even earlier, right? And so a lot of the the sheen um, mm-hmm. has worn off and they've also just lived through a lot of drama, quite frankly, yeah. right? Um, junior high and high school. So by the time they hit college, you know, there's kind of a relief mm-hmm. um, to, to change it up. Yeah. And to be together in community in the unique way that college is, even in spite of the pandemic, yeah. right? That they're all there <laughs> together in chapel. And even if they have to be masked up, we're here together. And they felt yeah. so free, I think, from from that. Mm-hmm. So I just I love that story. And I knew you'd really appreciate it. So thanks for reacting. Um, <laughs> it was so funny because in the course of that chapel talk, I remember giving them the line. It's like, you know, we're just eating Turkish delight all the time. And we just have this feeling that it's not good for us. And, you know, <laughs> and, and that's exactly what that response indicated. So uh, at any rate, I love the way that you divided the book into both a kind of description of how corporations strategize to commandeer our attention and what that's doing to us. And then a kind of real nuts and bolts set of questions to help us reimagine our lives differently. I love that. It reminded me of how Walter Brueggemann, I don't know if you're familiar with his book, The Prophetic mm-hmm. Imagination. I love that book. Mm-hmm. He says mm-hmm. that the, the prophet, we always need prophets, right? Truth tellers needs to both challenge the dominant consciousness and nourish an alternative one. And it's hard mm-hmm. to do both of those. And you did that very well. Thank you for being that prophet mm-hmm. for us. So, mm-hmm. yeah, let's mm-hmm. fr- first talk about the je- the challenging of the dominant consciousness, right? So you uncover for us a number of corporate practices that are designed mm-hmm. to keep us hooked. Can you just give a favorite example of one of those strategies, maybe one that kind of like really mortified you, uh, and then talk about how it works to form us? Yeah. So, oh boy, choosing one. <laughs> so many favorites. <laughs> Choose several if you um, want. I mean, I think horrifying our listeners can be super fun. <laughs> well, um, so one of the things that surprised me um, the most when I found out was to discover that my social media feed, that the, the sequence of, of posts that I was seeing and the, um, the responses I was getting on my post, you know, whether it was a like or a, or a share or whatever it was, but those weren't happening in real time necessarily. Right. Um, that it was actually being fed to me um, in such a way that was pacing, you know, is, is getting paced out to keep me on on the platform. Um, and that was just, uh, I was really surprised because I just thought, oh, you know, like. When it's going out know, there, it's coming to me, but no. Yeah, right. Everything's just kind of happening in real time. It's just, you know, regular traffic not thinking that someone was holding up traffic at certain times, right? right. And, and, and waiting on um, trying to make sure that I'd come back mm-hmm. um, and keep checking. So, so that part of the control of what I was seeing um, was, and when I was seeing it mm-hmm. um, was really surprising to me. Um, that certainly goes hand in hand with what most people know by now about uh, you know, how there is control over what we see, right? That right. there's algorithms that are prioritizing certain content over others, but that that's even happening when not just on Facebook or Instagram, but it's even happening when you're just doing what feels like a quote neutral Google search. Yes, that you can right. 
think it's information. It's like looking up a phone number in a phone book, right? Right. It's like, well, it's just there, right? But it's like, no, it's not like that at all. Um, yeah, Google I was surprised by that in your book. I had not actually heard that if you did the Eagle and two different people searched Eagle, you would get totally different results. I thought that whoever paid the most would get the highest. Yeah, you know. right. Yeah, it's just totally based on your algorithm. And it's, you know, and then you think about how um, so many of us work in places or work with the G Suite, you know, Google's got our email, or, you know. And it's like all that data is just going into that same algorithm. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's just vast, right? That vast amount of data that's getting fed into the algorithm is quite startling. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, so it's not only the operant conditioning in the first part of what you were talking about, like, you know, the Skinner kind of thing. It's like, we're just going to withhold some of your rewards, and, you know, and <laughs> then make you tap, click like crazy even more. So there's that. But then there's also just this kind of, um, I don't know, insidious feeling like, uh, well, the corporations are just feeding me what I want to hear, which is what mm -hmm. they're doing. And mm -hmm. then that that is deeply responsible for what the political struggles and things that we're facing right now, right? Yeah. Our failure yeah. to communicate well with each other. Yeah. It's formed yeah. us into people expect to see our, the world as we expect to see it. Right. Yeah. I mean, to the extent that the um, content that yields um, negative emotional responses, that that type of um, content gets prioritized right. on our feeds um, is really troubling. It's, um, it's scary, really, isn't it? Yes. And, and, and especially because it, it seems to lack conscience. <laughs> That's um, putting it very gently. In my it, it just, it's sort of, it's the kind of blindness. I mean, yeah, I mean, maybe I'm being, I'm trying to be as generous as possible, right? Like that it's, it's merely a, a design that sees the bottom line and yes. doesn't understand its larger impact. Mm -hmm. And, and that's where, you know, I think, oh, um, how good would it be if we if we stocked these tech companies with more people who studied history and literature and philosophy mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. um, and and there were these robust conversations right about how technology has has already formed humanity through through the ages right exactly. um, and to 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 then consider um, the the wider scope of of their actions and the kinds of design decisions that are made. And then take some kind of social responsibility, right? For those. Oh actions. yeah. On the yeah. back end. Right. But then on the back end, yeah, there's nobody wants to take responsibility. Yeah. right? Now. Nobody does. And there's such an analog and you point out the analogs along the way in your book, but there's such an analog with the food industry, which is something that regularly makes me angry. You know, mm -hmm. the, the, the stuff they feed us that's not good for us and they know it, but it's just, the, you know, the bottom line is the thing that's mm -hmm. driving. Um, and it, it and it really is killing people um, in mm -hmm. this country. You yeah. Know? So yeah. talk about malforming. You can't be more malformed than dead. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. So I, yeah. I loved um, this quote on page 10. So if you would, uh, a lot of what you were writing was summarized uh, the, of what was interesting to me by this quote. So if I, if I, if you don't mind, I can just read it and then I'd love to hear okay. your thoughts. Mm -hmm. You say, we love that we can be productive even when we are away from our desk, but when we've actually left the office or gone on vacation, we feel like our jobs never end and we remain psychically tethered to our work, often feeling compelled to respond to emails and off hour requests. And of course that's only gotten worse right through the years. Even mm -hmm. as we succeed in multitasking our way through the day in order to store up time to enjoy, when we try to rest, we are restless. And we are, when we are restless, we reach for our phones and devices because in some curiously deep and unexplored ways, our bodies and our imaginations have forgotten what else there is to reach for. Woo! I love mm -hmm. that so much. The link to Augustine is sweet enough, but, <laughs> but you kind of laying out the systemic failure of the Christian imagination, right? Mm -hmm. It's like James Davis and Hunter, you know, we mm -hmm. fail to just be the church. So mm -hmm. can you talk about those curiously deep and unexplored ways in our bodies and our imaginations, like the failure there? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's it is um it's this weird mix of living in a society that idolizes productivity, that is also a consumer culture, mm-hmm. um, that views rest and leisure in terms of entertainment um, mm-hmm. exclusively and consumption, and 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 so there's ways in which I think the technology is just a vehicle, right, for these much larger, long-standing, deeply institutionalized aspects of our society. Right? And American and, and, culture and, the, you know, the capitalism that we yeah. have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's a, it, it is both a vehicle in that it, it just kind of manifests it in a particular way, but it also, I would argue, amplifies, like it speeds it up, it intensifies, right, the allure of entertainment, for example, or the allure of productivity, right, as mm-hmm. as the end-all, be-all. And so, um, you know, especially when we're not um, attuned to um, how our habits and routines what you know, we're not attuned to even how our work cultures um, within organizations or school cultures, even right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, when I talk to my students, we we wrestle with like, what are we doing at this school, right? Yeah, what are the right. expectations of our students um, and the kinds of lives that they are living? Um, it's there's a kind of um, uh, it is a lack of imagination. Yeah, it really is. That's, Right. And, and, and then our bodies, I think our bodies do train us. Right. And, 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 and I think that is where, you know, you brought up the, the analog to the food industry. I just think it's the it is right there, right? Like you can learn, you can cultivate a taste, right. For certain kinds of food and and never know what this other range of food could be. Yeah. You quote Um, the, uh, you quote the, uh, C.S. Lewis passage, which is so great, right? We're making the mud pies. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's not only, it is imagination in our, in our minds and, and hearts and souls, but it's also like our bodies haven't experienced certain things. So it just, it doesn't know, right? right. It doesn't know what's possible. Yeah. And um, that just is really upsetting. It's really upsetting. Uh, <laughs> and sad. I mean, I think in some ways it's a thought that, you know, I read early on from the work of Sherry Turkle, mm-hmm. who has long been concerned about oh, yeah. uh, particularly the socializing effects yeah, of she's technology. she's been working on it for a long time. Exactly. But, she, you know, for her, it was a focus on young people. And, and she was really always has always been concerned about the window of development, right? Identity and uh, relationships amongst young people. But I think it, it carries on, right? It carries mm-hmm. on beyond young people into those of us in our adulthood um, that, that even those of us that might have tasted something quite different, even in our earlier years, right, mm-hmm. of life, we have forgotten, right? Like it is easy to have forgotten um, we have we convinced ourselves that um, to be successful, to be responsible, right, to be a good person mm-hmm. <laughs> is is to be online, right, constantly, right. right. Um, that that's that's the equation, and so those of us who want to be responsible adults feel right. like, well, this is it, this is it, this is what I have to do. Right. Yeah. And, and and that's not even begin to get at the whole instant gratification problem and the constant feeding of that, that this is. Uh, but I want to talk about that. The first, the problem of to be an adult, to do this, this is what you have to do. Because one of the great things about your book was that you made it very clear that it's not as if we can just throw our phones in the toilet. Right. It's just like, <laughs> right. We're not free to do that. Right. Most of us cannot afford to head off to Walden Pond for two years and write, right? Yeah. As much as I would like to do that. <laughs> so so it's like, what do we do with the, the that lack of freedom? Actually, I'd just like you to riff a little bit um, about mm-hmm. freedom and mm-hmm. um, enslavement here. Because it, it strikes me as that we're not even aware of the extent to which we have become enslaved, you know? Yeah. Well, 
Yeah. So I think especially in the, with the backdrop of the digital landscape, freedom is often rendered in terms of um, being free from the constraints right. of time or the constraints of place um, or even the constraints of our own, you know, capacities, uh, you know, the the multitasking. Yeah. yeah, multitasking is so attractive, right? Because it's like, no, you have the freedom to do five things at once, mm-hmm. right? And have 10 windows open on your, on your three devices all in front of you, right? Um, so there's, there's this promise of freedom from these sorts of um, what, what, I think are always seen as just part of the human condition, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, just just years and years of of uh, thought and literature and utopian visions, right? That are all oriented around this. But I think that kind of freedom is, while some of it is very important and and quite real. I mean, I I don't want to make less of it. I right. mean, those are important freedoms, especially for people that really are stuck in a very small place or really have genuine limitations that cut them off from experiencing community and experiencing genuine interactions with other people. Um, With all that said, I think to only think of freedom in that way is to miss out on lots of other kinds of freedom that include um, a freedom in one's relationship to the world, that is, that we aren't um, driven by or enslaved or compelled by um, our relationship with our technologies or, you know, our relationships with anything, quite frankly. Right. Um, that that, that um, we, can, we can easily lose sense of uh, can be like, um, that uh, one that is free of the, 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 the feelings of being compelled or being driven, uh, yeah. being enslaved to certain instincts or the, the kind of itchiness we feel in our fingers. Itchiness, yeah, restlessness, uh, yeah, this kind like, of, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I think, you know, that, like I'm interested in, in, in people developing relationships with their technologies that are, we can call it healthy. We can call it free, right? Right. Like, way that like I can choose wh- how to actually use this as a tool, <laughs> yeah. and not have it use me, <laughs> right? Um, and drive me, and drive my instincts, and drive my decisions, drive my perceptions of the world, right? Right. Um, and and I think there's also an even deeper freedom that I'm interested in, which is. Um, which I feel like is often quite antithetical to the the current tendencies of our digital landscape, and that's a freedom to genuinely be oneself. Yes, just be you who know, you are. Genuinely who you are in all of your beauty and all of your failures and weaknesses and, and to experience love even mm-hmm. in that, right? And I think that's that's, that's the good news of the gospel. It is. And, and it's what the kids really want. The kids are so lost right now. Oh my goodness. All the teenagers, my friends, all of us, it's like they're lost. They, they want yeah. to be loved and the social media is constantly feeding them information to the contrary, you know, that their value yeah. is placed somewhere else. And it's deeply sad. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, um, and, I, and that's why I think it, you know, there is, a part of the prescription, right, that says, well, maybe we need to think about how to limit certain kinds of digital services or platforms in our life. But I would say even more powerful than limiting is to create opportunities for people to actually experience the kind of freedom that they may never have tasted before. Yes. And then just going back to the chapel example is is really what I think they were were reacting to. It was free. Mm, Right. Yeah. Just like I I can be free to just be here. 
and and be in the chapel and not have to be somewhere else or be smart in my way of tweeting about the chapel or whatever right (laughs) yes and and yeah the way that that it's sort of freeing when you tell your your child you know they need need to go to bed on a certain time it's like they may not like it but they actually really love it (laughs) you know it it struck me as the same kind of thing Mm. you know but you know i work on attention uh, a a lot just sort of in my academic work and one of the things that i have discovered is that it may be our biggest human freedom is what we choose to pay attention to Mm. and that Mm -hmm. what we can pay attention to is what transforms us. So if we're not paying deep attention to anything, then we're not going to be transformed. Right. And I agree yeah. with you that what we're dealing with right now yeah. is hyper attention. It's, it's not that, that uh, being distracted is a form of lack of attention. It's hyper attention. It's, it's not mm. attending deeply. Right. So mm. I, I agree with that. But mm. since I was uh, thinking about deep attention and the problem of productivity and the sort of productivity culture, this I was thinking about, and I always think Mm. about this. And then I was reading this morning from Exodus from the lectionary and you're a fellow Anglican. Mm -hmm. So maybe you came across this as well. And so I just want to read this and get your thoughts because this just blew me away because I never thought about this passage in this way before. So the Israelites say to Pharaoh, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord, our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. So they're asking to go out and worship, right? But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Mm. so it's like if you substitute culture of productivity for pharaoh right yeah it's like this is the kind of lie that keeps us literally keeps our attention away from god and things that could restore us in the sabbath or whatever you know whatever other practices and put on this kind of like you got to be more productive you're lazy yes yes i mean our culture is telling us that all the time oh yes and and it's yeah, I, I was just having a conversation with my students because we I'm teaching the Internet and Society class that I talk about in the book right now. Uh-huh. And I, I just had them do um, an exercise where they, they um, you know, you were mentioning Santa Barbara earlier. This is one of the perks of teaching in Santa Barbara mm. is that we can send them out of the classroom and it's usually quite lovely and, and find a, little, a nice little spot for 15 minutes with just a few props that are thinking about what what makes up their hurried lives, what noise is in their lives, and 15 minutes. Yes. Okay. And then they come back, and they are uh, refreshed, um, and they, they tell me they, they, they never take that kind of time for themselves, mm-hmm. right, um, without a device, without any sort of agenda. Um, and they say that the reason why they don't do it many times is because they feel like they are being lazy. Yes. They did that. That's it. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it is, it is the lie, right. Um, the lie that to take genuine rest, right. Um, equate, you know, is equal to laziness. Um, and, and, um, wow. You know, it makes Sabbath really difficult <laughs> mm-hmm. <Yeah. laughs> to even imagine as a gift that God gives us um, to enjoy. Yeah. So it's deeply challenging. Um, you know, I, I saw that exercise on your book and I'm stealing that if that's okay with you. Cause I love okay. that. I just, I just love <laughs> the, because I know that that's exactly what my students will say. Cause I, I feel like as teachers, um, just teachers in general, professors mm-hmm. or high school, we have to teach more of this stuff now. Like mm-hmm. we can't just like assume that they even know how to take time to read <laughs> You know, what that looks like. I feel like we need to be increasingly intentional. And Mm. since I teach at a Christian college, as do you, I Mm. I teach Sabbath. I challenge Sabbath. Mm. And I and I try to explain it as a gift, you know, Mm -hmm. not not as this kind of like command. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Like you guys are missing out. Yeah. You know, yeah. On something that you really would be refreshing and restorative uh, to you. So they're, and they, they have similar responses. If they take me up on their challenge, they come back and they're just blown mm-hmm. away, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, I think this all gets at the, the, you know, there's the stuff about the cultural productivity that's, you know, behind all of this. But then I think even within the church, it gets to these large questions about what we think being faithful looks yes. like. What does right? it mean to that, follow Jesus? Right. And and does faithfulness look like some, you know, Christianized form of productivity, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever that looks like, um, you know, like a, a kind of um intense piety like active always constant piousness well like the puritans and their blue laws right you mentioned this in the book right that's that's where that comes from it's so american too (laughs) yeah so i think it's you know in, in terms of imagination i think that's where i just feel like as the church we we really need to dig past so many of, of the trappings of our society and even American Christianity in this mm-hmm. context um, and, and lean deeper um, into the theology um, and, and even, you know, your reading of Exodus. I mean, wow. Right. I mean, that's just like, that's spot on um, kind of convicting uh, to all of us about, the kinds of lives that we, we tend to settle for. Mm-hmm. And if I had just gotten up, gotten out of bed and started working, I never would have read it. <laughs> you know, yeah. and That's the kind of ironic thing. I mean, I, of course, I work in academia and I, it's my job to think through these kinds of things. But still, you know, there's right. a kind of serendipity uh, in, mm. in our work, in our living mm. that we miss out on if we're constantly crowding work in. You know, the way that I talk about it to other scholars and teachers, I've written a book about teaching. And, and mm. one of the things I say in there is that the most important thing that we do is just reading, not reading in our discipline. Right. But mm. just mm. reading because you just yeah. you need that space yeah. to, to be and to, yeah. to be more than just the tool of your discipline. You know, mm. so mm-hmm. anyway, I love that you, you don't just put all of the responsibility like of, of dealing with devices on our shoulders, right? As if somehow we could just sit around and eat chocolate cake all day and smell it and not <laughs> eat it, right? <laughs> we need these systemic awareness and systemic changes, right? So I love the invention of new liturgies idea. I think that's great. I mean, I love the ancient liturgies, Lectio Divina, Sabbath taking, all the things that are really coming back. But I love the idea of the invention of new liturgies, but also as a community, so going back mm-hmm. to that chapter, t- chapter title, created for community, but settling for connection, right? Mm-hmm. What are some ways we can get this language in front of? So let's think about if we're teachers and like, say, pastors, how do we get this language in mm-hmm. front of people? What, you know, what's the best mm-hmm. way to do that? Is it by challenging them to take the Sabbath? Is it by having retreats? Like we planned a Lenten retreat for our church. Mm-hmm. Nobody came, <laughs> it, you know, <laughs> which just is, isn't that just right it right there, right? Nobody had the time for a retreat. That's precious. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to ask about pastors and teachers, and then I'm going to get back to parents, because that's a whole other mm-hmm. harder thing, right? Yeah. You know, uh, anyway. pastors and teachers, I just, I feel like so much of this is like, it's about discipleship. Okay. And it's about even as the pastor and as the teacher, right? Being discipled. <laughs> yes. Um, and, 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 and longing ourselves, you know, like, and like moving into that journey of, of longing to experience communion with mm-hmm. God, with others, right? And, and, and searching for it in our own lives, right? right. And being moved by it in our own lives so that, it is a real good news to want to share, right? That it isn't, um, I guess, yeah, I, I feel like so much of it is experiential. Um, I agree. That, 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 that um, has to be behind the teaching, shall we say? Yes. Um, 
but at the same time, you know, and, and if anyone makes it through that chapter, I mean, that's the chapter that I, I felt like I, I nerded out most as much as I could as a non kind of seminary div- divinity school trained person. Mm-hmm. I mean, the theology of communion, um, built into, um, the Trinity, right. Um, mm-hmm. and, and thinking about the inherent, um, relational, um, dimension of who God is, mm-hmm. uh, is just exciting. I, mean, I, I totally just, agree. I had the I same response just... when I read Colin Gunton and, you know, right. all these, these relational yeah. theologians, it's it rang true. Mind blowing. Yeah. So much more fun than all the philosophical arguments yeah. about how works you know yeah. um that just was so beautiful and and so um i i don't know just get, gave me hope of like okay like i don't know how this works exactly but that that it could is yeah. phenomenal yeah right um and so letting oneself i guess um be taken by yes. the vision um and 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 trying to ignite um, that same kind of imagination in other people. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's something that I've written into the book, but I'm still trying to figure out how to get into my teaching Mm -hmm. uh, myself. Um, But I do think it is, um, it is also something that we could begin by enacting that is, you know, so maybe we don't have the hunger or the imagination or the excitement when we hear about the, the kind of stodgy theology, right. For some (laughs) folks. Um, but maybe we start with the meal, you know, I mean, there's so Mm -hmm. many beautiful experiences that are built around sharing meals together. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but, kind of being intentional, maybe yes. more intentional about what we're doing. That's, when my, we're... that's a favorite word of mine. I feel like that's yeah. exactly right for teaching, especially right. And yeah. discipleship. Yeah. Right. Offering perhaps some structure, mm-hmm. um, and also thinking about who we have at the table. Mm-hmm. Um, not just the people that we would normally, you know, easily gather around us. Right. Um, and so, um, yeah, so it's a it is I think communion is something that one can try to f- foster or facilitate experiences um, that can start to lead someone mm-hmm. you know down the path that says hey this is kind of different and more mm-hmm. than just um, reading something online or texting or um, mm-hmm. you know liking someone's tweet. It's like there was mm-hmm. something really different mm-hmm. here yeah and it's amazing how much pushback you know tish warren went online and said people shouldn't go back to church and she got all this kind of like stuff thrown back in her face <laughs> but all she was saying gee as an Anglican <laughs> priest is go back to church right and it's important to be back in church not because yeah. we're performing spirituality but because there are things there that yeah. you can't get anywhere else you know uh, having to do with embodiment, having to do with being in community. Um, yeah. Whether we yeah. really experience it as exhilarating or not, that's the whole point of the liturgy, as you point out, yeah. is that it's sometimes right. not exhilarating. You know? Right, right. It's, yeah. it's habit-forming and it's formational um, because most of our lives are lived in unconscious cognition, as you no right. doubt know, not in conscious mm-hmm. cognition. So the trick mm-hmm. is how do you pay attention consciously and then repeatedly Right. Yeah. Uh, in such a way that I'll form you. But with that in mind, I, I, I had a, a quick question for you. You and I have a similar experience of a Eucharist um, mm-hmm. that you wrote about in the book where you made this connection with the person who was giving you the Eucharist. Yeah. I had that same experience mm-hmm. when I was 30 years old. And I, I that was when I became an Anglican because I had been working mm-hmm. on Flannery O'Connor to make a long story short. Yeah. Short. <laughs> I became Anglican. Couldn't be Catholic and ha- keep my job, but um, <laughs> but Anglican came through and through. And that experience of the Eucharist blew my mind because I was raised Catholic. And ah. the way that I would describe it is that it was this kind of like that there are certain priests that are like Eucharist dispensers. They're like, <laughs> where, right, where the, the liturgy has become kind of an empty thing. Mm. So like, how do we do that? You know, it seems like we have to 
fight against that, mm. the deadening of something yeah. that's actually really rich, but at the same yeah. time still emphasizing that that it's it's not about the the person's point of view who's doing it, right? Sure. It, right? Right, right? There's grace there. Yeah, yeah. How, how do we do both of those? I, I'm just Ooh, thinking aloud here. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Um, gosh. You know, so um, I'm going to come at it in a slightly different direction. Okay. Um, so I actually, I, I'm in a situation where I'm actually not attending an, an Episcopal or Anglican church right now. Okay. Uh, but the church that I attend is a church where when people stand up to ask for prayer, the pastor knows their name. Wow. Every single, every single person. That's I mean, impressive. I'm amazed. I'm, always amazed like they they address them by their name and it's that kind of place um and so what i experience of the eucharist they call it communion um there is this sense of actually being known um and being in communion that way right um that that there's something really sacred about the 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 gathering um, and, and as the, the receiver, right. Um, being offered, um, offered Christ uh, by the pastor is, is just very powerful. It's just Uh, like your Eucharist experience and mine. It was like the person looked me in the eyes and said, you know, this is the body of Christ. And I knew that they wanted to share with me the body of Christ. Yeah, so I just I, I do think like I was gonna say originally like gosh maybe one has to hold tight onto one's ecclesiology yeah. <laughs> you know and, and remember like what church is right um, and that's hard very often mm-hmm. um, especially when when church is your job yes um, but at the same time I think um, there is something really lovely and organic about being a part of a church community for me right now where people actually are known by name. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that does, you know, it's not that everyone's everyone's best friend, right. Or the pastor knows everything, but that, that there is a quality of, I see you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's, that's what we all want. It really is what we all want. And it's, it's interesting too, that you're talking about uh, um, ecclesiology and, and the roles of the pastors and when it's their job, because my husband's an Anglican priest. And so I know mm. firsthand how hard it is to, to yeah. make sure you protect your own being yeah. and not doing right. Yeah. So that you can yeah. actually do those kinds of things and help facilitate that yeah. for other people. Right. It's, yeah, it's easier said than done. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And speaking of easier said than done, this is something else that I wanted to just talk quickly about. On page 81, you mentioned mm-hmm. how hard it is to, how much harder it is to get a payoff from people uh, when you're just in person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, the, okay, I'll just read because <laughs> I'm not, I'm doing a, a botched job of describing it. But you say, we can all think of that time when we made the split second decision to ignore the person standing next to us and bury our heads into our screens with desperate and perhaps feigned interest. Never done that. I've done that all the time. (laughs) We all know that meaningful in-person interactions take a lot of energy and that the payoff can be great. It is, as Bauman puts it, a form of deep diving. But Mm. when we are preoccupied and tired and are still looking for some kind of payoff, it is far more appealing to give ourselves permission to disregard those who are next to us and indulge in social media's promise of a dopamine hit and the promise of stumbling on a social interaction online that is far easier, even if not completely satisfying. That, that's yeah. really convicting because I feel like, and this is going back to a thread I wanted to pick up from earlier, mm-hmm. that instant gratification that we're being taught to search mm-hmm. for, I feel like I'm being increasingly malformed by Mm. that like if I had to say the struggle Mm. that I have I actually don't have a struggle with like Facebook or you know like it's never been tempting Uh to me like it is Uh for my husband Uh it's just not the same but Mm -hmm. I'm malformed by instant gratification Mm. like I I feel like Mm. I don't want to give the energy Mm. for the deeper Mm -hmm. and the delay right yeah yeah for sure um yeah 
And I don't know how to fix that because like mm-hmm. you say, if it's ubiquitous and it, it's just like mm-hmm. there's, and you're constantly being trained by, we'll yeah. pick up the phone and play Wordle. I don't know if you've yeah. played Wordle, but you know, yeah. it's like, well, I'm a little bit bored, so I'm going to play Wordle now. <laughs> um, right? Yes. Yes. Well, and I think, but you know, I mean, what you're saying about your the kind of self-recognition, mm-hmm. you know, that you're having, like, that's the beginning, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because then hopefully it starts to really bother you. <laughs> right. Because that's how it was for me. I mean, there were certain things about my devices that were like, oh, yeah, it's fine. But then certain things started, like, first it was recognizing, oh, wait, I'm doing this or, oh, this is happening. And then it became, oh, man, this really, it bothers me mm-hmm. about this. And, you know, we can call that the Holy Spirit. Um, it certainly wasn't some kind of high moral calling that made me bothered, right? It was yeah. just, I just was needled even by myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm kind of like, why do I always do this? Um, and so, and then I think it's, um, you know, when we're bothered enough, and like you said, you know, we can't chuck the phone in the toilet. Right. Um, well, then there are small things that we can do um, or these experiments that we can try right. on ourselves to say, okay, well, today I'm going to do something different. Yeah. I'm just going to give myself, you know, do something else. Do something instead else. Instead of going to Wordle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to force myself to just sit here, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and yeah. be bored. And learn and how be to be tired. bored. Right. You make a, a, a good argument about that, too. That is something right. that... Uh, we don't know how to do anymore. And other people have made that argument as well. And, and, and now I'm going to turn to our children, our poor children, you know, (laughs) Oh my goodness. You know, when I was growing up and you and I are the same age, roughly, right. It was just like, yeah, I'm bored, mom. We'll go figure something out. And literally she couldn't do anything. Yeah. Right. (laughs) But now I, my, I could give my son permission. Right. And frequently do. And, And here I'm just admitting to my bad parenting, right. To, to go and do his bowling online or, you know, especially in a pandemic, right? Yes. So help help us poor parents who are out here feeling like complete failures, who feel like we're malforming Mm. our children, you know, (laughs) how do we find grace? How do we find a way to help them without being like that parent who doesn't let them do stuff? (laughs) Right. And you don't want that either because that's not really an answer for them either. Yeah, especially in a pandemic, right? Because my son's yeah. social time, and I'll, and I'll also say my son is autistic, so there's that element. But his social mm-hmm. time is largely like generated or continued yeah. online. He does bowl. Yeah, yeah. He actually bowls in a league, and and but it's, yeah. he he gets meaningful social time while playing video games. Right. Oh but, yes. So yeah. help. No, I, you know, you'll notice this book isn't a parenting book. I noticed that. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's on on purpose because I haven't I haven't cracked the nut yet, mm-hmm. um, mm. um, and I and I am more than knee deep. I am chest deep, like in it, just like everybody, you know. And mm-hmm. I'm 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 feeling just as challenged and guilt ridden, and like you said, the pandemic mm-hmm. was really just disastrous for this issue it definitely was yeah for all of our children it Mm -hmm. just is grievous really Mm -hmm. um that this time and and so you know i i tend to think of two things for parents i think one um this is kind of always the the general lesson (laughs) that i continue to learn as a parent which is you know, I can I can try to do what I can, but in the end of the day, my child is the Lord's and the Lord will need to protect Hallelujah. and guide my child, right? Like I I can't I can't control the outcome. That's um, right. even though I'm gonna I keep on trying, right, as as best as I can. No, <laughs> and that's better. part of the lesson of what you're teaching is that we're not in control, right? I mean yeah. Yeah. we think we yeah. are. Um Yeah. So a lot of it is give you know, letting go. Um so that um, we can sleep at night, um, and and trusting that the Lord will will protect and guide them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second thing is um, is about 
kind of back to the idea of creating circumstances where people experience communion yes, yes. is, is I, you know, I might not win quote unquote, every battle every day mm-hmm. on the screen time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And, and most of the time I will lose. Um, and I will feel guilty about it mm-hmm. when I go to bed that night. Um, but if I can find a way to, um, have a meal or an activity or a trip, some kind of experience for my child that is tech-free, that reminds them of something that is beautiful, mm-hmm. that is exciting and lovely, right? Mm-hmm. Something that's true, that rings just, that rings their bell, you know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I do. Right? Yeah. Then, then that's, I just... I just, I really do believe that if we can give our children those kinds of experiences, and and it might be for some families, you know, like depending on how old your kids are and so forth, like it might be reading, you know, a book together, you know, just even if it's not every night, you know, once a week or something um, and igniting imagination through that or whatever mm-hmm. it might be, um, trusting that those experiences that they're having is laying some kind of foundation, right? Mm -hmm. It's creating some landscape of imagination in them Mm -hmm. that says, oh, like that wouldn't have happened Mm -hmm. if I was on my phone or at the screen. Right. Right. And and I want more of that, you know? Right. And so things like that to go back to CS Lewis, it's like, take them to the beach, right? Yeah. Take them on the holiday in yeah. the sea and then feed their imagination with how wonderful that is, you know, uh, to the extent yeah. that you can. Um, yeah. To think of it positively. How can I really give them desire for the better things? Yeah. You know? Well, and that's, I mean, it's a very Augustinian, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, this is all James Smith right mm-hmm. up his alley. You know, it's, it's where we're desiring animals. We are appetite. We have appetites, we have appetite. right? And so as parents, if we can, we can, you know, inculcate certain appetites, mm-hmm. right? That our children wouldn't kind of easily find with the activities that society wants to give them, mm-hmm. um, then that's a real win. You know, totally agree. Mm. Well, that sounds like a great place to conclude. And unless you have any other last tidbits or things you wanted to talk about, uh, anything else that we didn't address that you wanted to address? No, that sounds good. I mean, I I think I I always just hope that when people read the book, they feel hopeful. I was very, I felt very hopeful. Oh, good. Yeah, just that something is possible. Yeah. (laughs) Something is possible besides what, what, we have now. Yeah. Well, I do think that that's the strength of the book. So thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. Great. And listeners, thank you for tuning into this discussion with Felicia Wu Song, author of the timely and wonderfully entitled Restless Devices, Recovering Personhood, Presence, and Place in the Digital Age, published by InterVarsity Press Academic.